city of mine How I love, how I love the city of mine It never gets me down City of mine How I love, how I love the city of mine In the city, I was raised on its edge. Okay, recording in progress. Before we say anything, I have to press the record button because the most interesting conversation always happens in the chit chatting part. All right, Art, hi, what were you saying? Oh, yeah, I haven't seen YouTube for almost two months. Is it Jumi? Is it two months? And Ninja, is it two months or a month? Yeah. Uh, probably. Think? I think we're on hiatus for the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last, well, this is already the end of September. Time flies. But I was going to say, the last time you guys saw me, it was recorded in my old apartment. Now I'm now in the city. So as you can see, backgrounds are much different. I'm recording on my MacBook. So I just got a new place in Toronto. So I was living in the house. I was living outside of Toronto, which is about an hour and a half. Now I'm in the city center. And this is just a new... um, Good for you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of upgrade. I see Jeremy, uh, the books are still piled up high. So there are more. very there are busy. More. I, I've, I've blown through probably since we last spoke, I've blown through probably 20 or 30 of them, but I've bought like 50 more. So, oh, damn. so one day I'll, uh, I'll have a mansion with a book room. One day Jeremy's going to have his own library. And you'll be Hi, welcome guys. to come record podcasts there. Yes. And hi, guys. We have a new friend joining us. Hi, new friends. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. So uh, my name is Boone. I'm currently like first master student at NYU Shack real estate program. Uh, my background is in finance. Just my work experience is equity research. That's kind of it. So I got interested in real estate and uh, this program. And then I met Dennis, who then introduced me to Ninja and Ninja invited me to this book club and happy to be here. Oh, hi. Welcome. Boon, right? Oh, yeah, it's Boon. Yeah. Boon is from Thailand. And before we continue the conversation, Boon, let me just let you know that this is a recorded book club for my podcast. So if you don't want to be recorded, it's voice only. So if you don't want to be recorded, just let me know and I can cut you out in the editing. So you can just be a listener and audience. But if you do want to participate in the discussion and talk with us and be part of the podcast, you're more than welcome to do so. I'm totally fine with anything. Uh, You don't have to edit it out. I can be in it. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I'm going to the the voice version. I don't know why. I just like it. Yeah. (laughs) I like the clubhouse. Yeah. I'll be listening for the majority of the time just to learn as much as possible. Boone is a new friend, so we have to give him an overview of what's going on before we scared him away. So yeah. this is a book club discussion and it's personal opinions only. We don't give out any investment advice and we do have a lawyer, Jeremy, here. So, <laughs> so we'll be fine. We'll be fine. This is just a book club discussion about commercial real estate, about the books that we are reading or Jeremy have read it. You can see from you can just tell by his background awesome. how, many, how many books he has. Oh, wow. One day he's going to have his own library. And before we get started about this book, The Power at Ground Zero, yes, that book is about 10 or 15 pounds. I have a few announcements. The first announcement is I am going to New York City. Great. When? October 6th for NYU Shack's Women in Real Estate Conference. Great. As always, I always go to Shaq's conferences, even though I graduated and moved back to Las Vegas. And this time I'm on the planning committee, helping them, helping them promoting the conference. So I have to mention it in my podcast to help them to promote this conference. And I will put the event page, registration page in the show note. So if you or you have friends who work in commercial real estate in New York City or nearby cities, or even the West Coast like me, feel free to forward them this event page 
check out a great lineup of speakers. These are amazing leaders in our industry, and it's going to be a great opportunity to learn and network. Boon, are you going? Will you be there? Will I see you there? Um, yeah, I should be there. All, gen- all genders yeah. are welcome I'll, too. Men I'll are welcome to attend. Can I say something about the conference? Yes, Jeremy. For the first time I was, the first year, BC, I, I went. And for everybody who's listening, I think I actually got in for free because I guarded the door for like the first hour. So I was fine. You know, I got to sit at a, uh, I, I got to sit at a nice table and you know, it was really interesting. They had some great speakers. It's going to be very interesting. I don't remember if they had it last year. They may have had it virtually. And, uh, it's a great opportunity to meet people to learn it's kind of overwhelming but you know i think if you go more than once you'll know a lot of people so it's definitely worth going and the second question for boone is who are you who do you have for what classes are you taking and who are your professors so i'm currently taking four classes so i have real estate finance with russell bates i know him so, wow he's it's a lot of reading for his class and a lot of uh but then it's like, to me, it's like pretty much basic finance. It was pretty straightforward. My second class is legal principle, the law class. I'm taking that with Mark Shapiro. My third class is real estate economics. I'm taking with, I'm taking it with Joe Hastings. And my last class is the development process with James Ellinger. He's good. The professors you have are wonderful. It's great that you're here. You know, Minja is a huge resource. And just for the record, this is the legal disclaimer, the comments and opinions issued by me and the other, Ms. Yan, Art, and the other participants are our opinion and our opinion alone. We do not represent anybody other than ourselves. That's just the notice. I think we all have to give this is our opinions, our comments, and none of us comment about anything that we're involved in. Uh, I have never commented on anything that I've worked on actively. That's important. Image is a great example of what social media can be, of, of what good social media can do. You know, we see every day in the paper what the bad social media is. This podcast and her social media presence and her YouTube channel and her Twitter feed and uh, the Twitter feeds of other professors, including Dean Chandon and Professor Robinson, you know, they contribute to the discourse, especially about real estate. So I'd encourage you to follow them on Twitter. Uh, there's a lot to learn. These people have an immense amount of knowledge. The professors at NYU, they're some of the smartest people you're ever meet, you're ever going to meet in New York City, which is saying something. And they have decades of experience. Um, Selinger is very smart. Bates, uh, I had an interview for an internship with him once. He was a brilliant guy. These are really top people. I don't know Shapiro, but the uh, the law class, uh, I thought it was easy. Nobody else agrees with you yeah, thought I mean, it was, was easy because you're a lawyer already. Yeah, I, I should have placed out of it. I just didn't. I, there was a paperwork. I was. I, I actually regret not placing out of that. I, I learned a lot in the class, but I feel like by not placing out of that class, I didn't get to take Manisha's second class or another class because I think that, you know, the problem I had by the end and you look, you're coming back into school after working, which is good, I think. When I went to law school, I did not. I went straight from school, but you're coming back, you're a little more mature and you know, you're going to be, you, by the end, the thing I was, the biggest decision I had to make the last year was, the last semester was which class am I going to take? Cause I'm interested in that. Cause you know, there are some really great classes. I regret there was one international class. I don't even remember the name. I went to one of their classes. I don't think he's doing it again this year, but I, I was sitting there, I'm in the audience and I'm like, why did I not take this class? I, I, I took affordable housing instead of that class. I don't regret not uh, affordable housing is taught by one of the most prominent practitioners of affordable housing in New York City. She was the head of HPD and is responsible. No, she was the head of HDC, I'm sorry, and is responsible for building tens of thousands of units. But I'm saying there and this and this guy is just talking. I'm like, oh, my God, this is what, you know top businessmen are. The day he was there, he had a guy calling in at seven in the morning from Tokyo or Singapore, I can't remember which, talking about building buildings in the Far East, which is 
absolutely fascinating. And it's something that, you know, today, you know, what we're seeing with Evergrande, you know, when we do our next book, probably next year, we should do a book about the last financial crisis. I don't think it's the same thing, but I think we're seeing with Evergrande, you know, we're seeing something that is not similar, but it's the same kind of thing where there were concerns about the cascade. And you know, the thing, of it, like in the classes at NYU, you'll hear them talk about the great financial, the great recession, the great financial crisis, whatever they want to call it. I called it life when it happened. <laughs> um, but it was 2008. And I, I just remember the world was coming down. And, you know, we see that a little bit in this book. This book talks a little bit, uh, talks about it at length but in a different way than you might get in other aspects or other books. Or it's interesting to see because it had a major impact on what happened at Ground Zero. It had a major impact on what happened in New York and the world. You know, we talked about it last time with the big short. Yes. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for touching on about today's topic. As much as we love our school and we love our professors, and I cannot wait to see all of them again on October 6th. Today's topic is about a book called The Power at Ground Zero. It's about the redevelopment project of World Trade Center. And oh, by the way, Jeremy, I watched the movie Too Big to Fail. So maybe we can talk about that in the last recession. Yeah, the next one and Evergrande. Next. But I don't, you know what? I don't I don't think I can talk about Evergrande publicly on a recorded podcast. Um let's think I, about it in the in the next I, but I think but when we do the too big to fail, probably because it's already October. We can uh, touch we, on it, but let's yeah. not go well, too deep. Yeah. yeah. But you know, when we do too big to fail, I think we, by then we'll have known what's happening. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. to comment on something like that as it's going on. Because first of yeah. all, nobody knows what's going on. Right. I think maybe 30 people in the world actually know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just getting back to what was happening, you know, 15 years ago or however many years ago it yeah. was, you know, and in the movie and in the book, Too Big to Fail, you'll see people going in and out of Maiden Lane with the, um, the, the Fed's office. And they were basically, you know, trying to figure out how they were going to save the world. So it was interesting because you had millions, hundreds of people working on those deals, people from law firms, people from all these things. And, you know, that's, re- but nobody really knew what was going on, except for the 20 people who were in that room, most of whom were shuttling in and out. So really maybe five people knew what was going on. Well, Jeremy's taking a water break. Moon just turned off his camera. I hope we don't scare Tim away. Moon, please come back. I know we're like 20 minutes into the recording and we still haven't talked about the book yet. And art is still here. All right, Jeremy, can we start talking about the book? Let's let's start talking about the book. Sure. This book, um, this book talks about something that shaped probably everybody on this podcast's life. It shaped the city. You know, as somebody who moved to the city in your 20s, you, you never knew the city before that. You probably don't remember flying on a plane without massive security. September 11th, which was just 11 days ago, was a seminal event in America and the world. It changed everything for everybody overnight. And yeah, I, mean, I think we can really, this, this, this story is the story of the World Trade Center. It's the story of the buildings that were there before, but it's primarily the story of the buildings that are there now, which everybody knows. I, for one, have never been in the Freedom Tower or One World Trade Center, whatever they call it. It's on my list. I just don't think I should pay $40 to go up to the top of it. Spoken like somebody who grew up here, I've also never been in the Empire State Building. Uh, um, So, you know, I don't, or a Rockefeller. I've been in Rockefeller Center or in, in 30 Rock. I've never been up to the top. But that's definitely something that I recommend people who are visiting should do. The World Trade Center why was, just to recap, and this is something Art, who's really into urban planning and urban design, really needs to, to comment on. The World Trade Center was essentially 760s era urban planning at its, I don't want to say finest, but it was at its peak. So basically what happened was, and by the way, we talked about this, 
about six or seven months ago when we did the book on William Zeckendorf. You probably remember what he called the downtown maneuver or the Wall Street maneuver, which was essentially he played a real monopoly, moving buildings between buying buildings, buying leases, moving companies between there were like 10 or 15 of these old buildings downtown. At the time, there at the time that they were talking about the World Trade Center, there really weren't that many new buildings in downtown Manhattan downtown as the financial district. Uh, what you guys know is FIDI and where probably somebody you know lives. Um, I remember, and this is going back to the early 2000s, late 90s, nobody lived downtown. You know, downtown was where a bunch of people had offices. There were big office buildings, a lot of old office buildings. Now those old office buildings, which were B office buildings, have become uh, very expensive apartments. But back then, and, and, you know, just go back to the 70s or to the 60s. David Rockefeller was the head of the Chase Manhattan Bank. David Rockefeller was in Zeckendorf's book because Zeckendorf was involved. With, he was the guy Zeckendorf put, was put up, put Zeckendorf up to, okay, let's go and like get some buildings together and move some people around and rejigger downtown. He wanted to do something to revitalize downtown because Midtown had become essentially a competitor to downtown that was eclipsing downtown, which remains until this day. Yes. Sorry, give a little background on the timeline. This is before... Oh, we're talking 9/11. in the 60s here. We're talking in the 60s here, how we got to the World Trade Center. Okay, okay, good. So originally, the city was downtown. And one of the interesting things of the book that becomes relevant when you talk about the World Trade Center is a lot of Manhattan is infill, was in the river. So what happened was, was over time, they threw stuff, they threw dirt, you know, carcasses, dead old ships, deleterious debris and other crap, garbage, whatever you want to call it. And that's, that's, that became landfill. And they built things on it. One of those things was Radio Row, which was a couple square blocks. It was downtown on Greenwich Street, um, and it was like a bunch of small businesses. You know, you'd go there, you'd buy like a radio transistor or something. This is before iPhones, before clock radios. You, you would, you, radios were a big deal. You would repair them. Um, nowadays, you know, my computer or phone breaks, I chuck it in the trash and buy a new one. Back then, you repaired your radios. So there was something called Radio Row there. Now, at the same time, David Rockefeller wants to do something big. His brother is the governor. These are the, and by the way, these are the Rockefellers. So. When you talk about the Rockefellers, you think richer than Gates and Buffett, richer than Bezos, with the power of, of those guys just magnified. Because remember, they control, They were the richest people in the country. They controlled, in New York, they controlled Rockefeller Center. They were philanthropists par, ex, par excellence. They funded, they, like, they built MoMA. MoMA, if I'm not mistaken, is located on the site of one of their houses. They donated a house, like literally just gave their house. These guys were incredibly influential and they controlled the Chase Manhattan Bank. David was, it, it, uh, no, David died about five years ago, but he was a, yeah, four years ago. David Rockefeller was a, one of the most legendary people in finance. He was the chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank. He was a pseudo private diplomat, an incredibly powerful guy. He wanted to keep downtown as it was. Yes, I'm sorry. This reminds me of the book, The Power Broker. I think we should definitely do an episode on that about New York City history. Uh, definitely. And, and by the way, these guys come into the power broker too. It's the same guys. But the power broker was state. This is actually by state. And I'll get to that. So... David wants to revitalize downtown because they actually care. They were, and look, you know, this is just another thing. And I've told this to many people over the years, and I'm going to say it again, cut me off if you don't want to hear it. I used to work in politics and the biggest contributors were always real estate people. Everybody's, people are very suspicious. Oh, you're just investing because you want, you're just giving money to this politician. You're doing this because you want favors and time. That's not true. If you think about it from a real estate developer's perspective, You've done, you're, you want to be involved in the city. I own property downtown. I'm interested, or, or downtown Vegas, downtown anywhere. And we've had this discussion privately, I think. You can cut that out. But we've had this discussion before. 
you care about your town. Now, David Rockefeller is not in real estate. His family are real estate investors. They built Rockefeller Center, which is a great book called Great Fortune is about that, which is in Midtown. So he wants Midtown to do well. But he's also the head of the biggest, one of the biggest banks in the city. You know, Chase Manhattan back then, as it is today, what was separate from J, now it's J.P. Morgan Chase. But, you know, there were a million banks back then. There was Manny Hanny, there was the Chemical Bank, there was uh, 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 Citibank, there was, there were a million banks. But this was a big bank. And David Rockefeller was very adamant that downtown do well. He was a booster for the city. He founded the famous partnership for New York. Kathy Wilde is the current head of that. I heard her speak at some Cornet function a couple of years ago. Brian Schwager, who's a professor, of great guy, was there. These guys cared about doing the city doing well. And he was started talking about what can we do to renovate downtown? And his vehicle to do that was to, to, to back then, what they did was they'd say, okay, the government's going to come in. We're going to condemn this part of the, this, you know, these blocks, and we're going to build something new. Now, the next thing is, how do we pay for this? Rocky, his brother, had an edifice complex. He loved to build. If you've ever been to Albany, he built all that stuff. The ugly buildings on the, 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 the plaza, Albany College. It, that was all Rockefeller. He loved to build. But the state was already starting to suffer. It didn't have the money to, to build all this stuff. The city doesn't have any money. The city was not yet broke. It was getting there. But you know, you're talking about billion, what modern day equivalents would be billions of billions of dollars. To, they're going to invest. So they look around and they say, hmm. You know, the Port Authority, you've got a lot of money. The Port Authority it, um, is. The New Jersey Port Authority. Back then it was called the, New, the Port of New York Authority. It is now the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And it is one of the most fascinating agencies you will ever find. The Port Authority was created. It has a zone. I don't have it on me, but maybe we can find it quickly. It has a zone that it is responsible for. So basically, and I could tell you a funny story actually. So basically the Port Authority was created, I think there were two reasons it was created. One was because they wanted to build a tunnel that they still haven't built. The other was because New York and New Jersey recognized in the 70s that, uh, I'm sorry, in the 10s and 20s of 100 years ago, that they could not compete against each other in terms of ports. That's stupid. So they figure, what can we do to make sure that the city, that, that, that the ports don't compete against her? We have to cooperate. And if we pool our resources, maybe we can do things better than we could do them individually, which if you think about it, it's a brilliant idea. So the first thing they do is they get their own zone. It's, uh, it goes up to the Tappan Zee, slightly south of Tappan Zee Bridge, down, I, I like, below Staten Island, below Elizabeth. And they cooperate on the port. And back then the port was like on the waterfront. It was literally a bunch of piers on the west side. Over the next 50 years, the port really shifted. So they invested a ton of money in New Jersey. Now it's Port Newark and Port Elizabeth. If you watch The Sopranos, anybody watch The Sopranos? Paulie Walnut, there are a couple of scenes where they're talking about Port Newark. That's the port in New Jersey. The port on the west side has, is, is basically dead. Well, it is dead. Now, one of the old piers has become something called the Little Island. Minja, when you come to New York City, you have to check out the Little Island. It's gorgeous. It's like an urban park in the middle of the river. So the Port Authority was created to do that. Then it started with transportation. Okay, so now it's doing tunnels into Manhattan, the Holland, the Lincoln Tunnels. It owns something called the George Washington Bridge, which has stolen hours and hours and hours of my life uh, over the last 36 years. I can't tell you how long I've sat at that bridge or those two tunnels. It's got the Gothels Bridge, the Outer Bridge, which is the, uh, it's got the new Gothels Bridge. It's got the Bayonne Bridge, which about 15 years, about 10 years ago, they literally put on, they jacked up because it was, it was too low and the ships were too tall. So they literally just pushed it up. So the Port Authority at the time had a lot of money. Okay, you got, oh, it also has three airports, four airports, four airports. Uh, the Port Authority has a lot of money. Now its money comes from the airports. Back then, they had these bridges. A bridge costs a lot of money to build. You 
pay your debt service, you maintain your bridge for the next 50, 100 years, your bridge throws off a lot of money. So they're looking around like, hmm, you, you got some money we can use for this. The thing about the Port Authority is it's a bi-state agency, which becomes important later on. So because it's a bi-state agency, it is just impossible to get things. Well, it's not impossible. Yeah. Is it okay if you explain what is a bi-state yeah. agency for people who it's don't a- live in New York and international <laughs> listeners? I'm sorry. So it's a bi-state agency. It's the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. It is essentially New York and New Jersey have a compact to run the Port Authority. It's actually chartered by the U.S. Congress. It's like one of the only things that's because it's literally a treaty between two states. So they've agreed to pool their resources and the Port Authority has the exclusive jurisdiction to do various things within that. So funny story in the 40s, Tom Dewey is the governor of New York. You know, Dewey defeats Truman. He wants to build a bridge called over the Hudson River that is now the Tappan Zee Bridge. And he's willing to pay for it. And the port, and there's a really narrow section of the Hudson in Westchester where you could build it, it jumps over to Rockland. And he's like, okay, I'm going to build it there. The Port Authority shows up and says, yeah, that's our zone. You can build the bridge and we'll keep the revenue. And Dewey's like, no, I, I, I build the bridge. You know, we're going to create the throughway authority or the bridge. I, I think it's the throughway authority. Everything in New York has an authority. And the Port Authority is like, well, you know, that's in our zone. We're authorized by Congress. That's ours. So Dewey has to, if you've ever been over the Tappan Zee Bridge, it's at the widest point of the Hudson. It's like, why is this bridge here when I could throw a quarter across at a couple other points? The reason is because the Port that was like literally outside, right outside the Port Authority's zone. And they control certain activities in that zone. They control certain airports. They control all this stuff. Basically, these guys looked at it like looked at it like it was a piggy bank in the '60s, and they were like, "Aha, you can build this." Jersey at the time, and because it's a two-state agency, Jersey gets to say, "Well, we want something too." What does Jersey want? There are these failing rail rail lines, something Hudson. Uh, now they're called the Port Authority Trans Hudson. Back then, they had a different name. I don't remember what it is. I can look it up. I'll have it for you next time. So these lines are failing and they need they need millions and millions of dollars in upgrades. So the Port Authority, Jersey says, okay, if you make the site near New Jersey and you take over these rail lines, yeah, you could build your port. You could build your World Trade Center. Those train lines are now the path train. So. It was the Twin Towers, right? Yeah, these were that's the Twin Towers are the World Trade Center. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Just to distinguish yeah. the, we, we the older project versus the newer project. We haven't even, yeah, we haven't gotten to where the project's actually been built. We're still in the negotiation phase. So, okay, we're going to build the twin, we're going to build the World Trade Center. They hire, uh, I think his name was Yamuru Nak. Uh, so what was Jeremy, it's okay if you use the name Twin Towers just, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, just to distinguish between the okay. previous project versus the current project. And so Wait, they hire the World Trade Center is the World Trade Center like the seven. So that whole area, because I was just looking at it while you're talking. So the World Trade Center is like a series of buildings, right? The is World Trade way? Center is a real estate development on about 16 acres of downtown Manhattan. So what happened was, was in the 60s, Rockefeller, this was a thing back then. They wanted, they thought that they would build a trade center. You know, Rockefeller wants to build something downtown and they want to build a trade center where trading firms will, will congregate and they hire and they, so they decide, okay, we're going to site this on 16 acres. We're going to demap some streets. So the streets were in a grid. They kicked them out. They made a super block. So that's, that's the site. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the site we're talking about. Now there are streets running through it again, but we can get to that in about 30, in about 35 years. I'm sorry. So that's the site of World Trade Center. Yes. yes. Could you please explain, give yes. a brief summary of, because there are people who are not from New York or they're, they listen in other countries. Yeah, that I'm, they I'm need sorry. to know what happened at the Twin Towers, the 99-year so, ground lease, 9-11, and then the World Trade Center that we see today. 
Yeah. So right now we're in the 60s and they want to build a World Trade Center. They've identified a site downtown Manhattan. They hire an architect. They condemn the area. The locals on Radio Row go berserk because their businesses are getting condemned and they're going to be converted into a World Trade Center. They hire an architect. I think his name, I forgot his name. He was a brilliant Japanese-American architect. Minoru Minoru Yamasaki, I think. And he designs these two buildings that that we know now as the Twin Towers. The North Tower, the South Tower, one and two. However, they're not the only buildings on the site. There's a gigantic plaza. So there are two towers. There's a plaza. And let me tell you, I was there once. The plaza was huge. It was like five acres. And you couldn't even go there because it was so windy. There was a customs house. So there were, I think there were seven buildings, seven things there. Number seven is something completely separate. So forget about number seven. That comes in the 80s. We'll get there. So they build these seven, they build these buildings, these seven buildings on this plot of land, this 16 acre site. Numbers one and two are the twin towers. The other is one is the customs house. One is, you know, the, the Deutsche Bank Bankers Trust building. You know, they've, they've all got different names. We're, for, we're talking about the twin towers. The twin towers come on the market and dump a ton of square footage onto the market in, the, in 1973. And essentially, they need to be subsidized by the state because they're not making any money. And they're third, they've dumped all this space onto a market that's not really doing well. Because back then, as is the same thing today, I one of the things, actually, let me back up for a second. The book talks about the downtown and midtown office markets and their relationship, which is kind of pre-COVID, their relationship was inverse. When rates were low, low enough in midtown, businesses want to be in midtown. When rates are high in midtown, downtown does well. Because Midtown's near all the trains. So I can commute in from Jersey. I can commute in from where. It's really convenient to be in Midtown. Midtown has amenities. They've got theaters. It's a bustling district. Downtown, you know, you got law firms. You got the courts. Then there were a bunch of banks. You know, Chase Manhattan was there until a few years ago. There were a lot of law firms down there, although some have moved up, some have moved down. The World Financial Center comes much later. But, you know, people wanted to be in Midtown. And the Trade Center dumped a ton of square footage. However, the Twin Towers are, are there for 30 years and they start doing better. In fact, they, they really kind of revital, not revitalize, but the area starts doing well. The Reichmans, the legendary Olympia New York developers, they yeah, they're build- Canadian. Yeah, they're Canadian. Uh, and they went down in history pretty badly. So, <laughs> Well, that we could do another, we should do an episode just on the Reichmans. There's a great book about them. Hey, Minja, it's actually funny. I live in uh, Midtown Toronto. <laughs> I don't live in downtown. Yeah. No, I like how there's a Midtown and a downtown New York, too. Yeah. I I love how art, every time when there's something relate to Canada, he can jump right in. Just like every time when there's something related to Vegas, I just jumped in. I love it. You're so passionate about uh, your city. I, I, well, well, I mean, it's a real estate is a local business, but continue, Jeremy. Yeah. Well, it's a local business and it's an international business. So in yeah. the 70s, the Reichmans bought a bunch of buildings in, in downtown and midtown, but they built uh, the World Financial Center, which um, is now Brookfield Place. I think it's the building. One of them has like a pyramid on the top of it. They're owned by Brookfield. Brookfield bought them after Olympia and York went bust. Yeah. But Olympia and York was like the premier developer in Toronto. They did the World Financial Center. Then they went to, to London and they did Canary Wharf and then they went bust. I was, I, I'm sorry, I, was, I interrupted you. you. You say the shopping center place, the train exchange station that connects to Brookfield Shopping Mall, the if white one? If it's in downtown Manhattan and it's got a pyramid on the top of it, that's World Financial Center. And it's across the street from the Trade Center, because separated by West Street. So the trade center was, if, if you Google, uh, no, the, the um, no, that thing is the Oculus. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. Uh, what, so you're talking about one. is just Google World Financial Center. You know the buildings. You just don't know you know the buildings. Um, World Financial Finan- Center in New York? Yes. 
Oh, by the way, there is a World Financial Center in Shanghai designed by KPF, one of my favorite architecture firms. Hopefully, I can invite them to be on the podcast one day. There is a World Financial Center everywhere. This was, I think they call this Brookfield Place now. They've got a bunch of buildings there. American Express is there. Jones Day is there. Uh, I think Millbank Tweed was there for years. Yeah, that's it. So they're like right across the street from the World Financial, from the World Trade Center, separated by West Street. That's in the book too. Everything's in the book. So basically the World Trade, because Manhattan is built on infill, to build the World Trade Center, they've got to excavate down. They've got to put a concrete wall in to keep the river out because the river is going to come in and and flood the place. They put a concrete wall. Has anybody ever been to 9-11 Memorial? So if you, I've never been there, but if you go there, apparently you can see, it's called the bathtub. It's this gigantic concrete wall that keeps the river out. So that's the World Trade Center. It's built on top of that. In 1990, in the 80s, the Port Authority puts out, they have another plot of land that they put out the bid. That's seven, the old seven. Larry Silverstein builds that. I'm a little bit confused by the names, World Financial Center, World Trade Center. They're separate. They're completely separate. The World Financial Center is across the street from the Trade Center. It's basically another, it's a class A office building that's not in the World Trade Center. And over time, and it doesn't compete real. Well, it does, but it doesn't. the, The World Trade Center has a lot of government tenants. It's got the city, it's got the Port Authority. And over the years, it starts to become a decent building you know but it's a pain in the ass if you're there if you're on a high floor you have to change at the skyway like the, the, the sky lobby so and this actually was a tragic thing but you, you had to change elevators so it's really an isolated thing there's a mall in the basement but it does well you know it's starting to do well and the trade center as usually happens after this government project it's got lost to lease you know the market could do better and they start talking about privatizing it yes i'm sorry are we still talking about the 1970s? Oh, oh this- yeah, the Twin Towers. Yes, um, yes, the Twin I, Towers. I, until I say otherwise, I'm talking about the Twin Towers. Okay. So they want to privatize the Twin Towers. But remember, that the, the, the Twin Towers are just two buildings. There's also a customs house. There's Seven World Trade, which is owned by Silverstein on a ground lease. And in the 90s, Rudy Giuliani builds his command center for OEM in Seven World Trade. We'll learn about that later. So the Twin Towers are doing well. Morgan Stanley is there. Cantor Fitzgerald is there. In the 90s and 80s, they start talking about how are we going to privatize this? Because at some point, you know, do you want to do business with the Port Authority? It's, it's a government agency. You know, can they run a real estate project? That's something people need to consider. Some people don't want to be in buildings where you're dealing with a bunch of government bureaucrats. People start saying, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to be here. In the 90s, so they decide to privatize it. In 2000, 2001, they do privatize. They put it out to RFP and you get a lot of bids. So remember, you're building on numbers one through six, not seven. There are seven buildings there. Seven is separate. It's owned by Larry Silverstein. He knows the Port Authority, but he's just, back then, Silverstein's a small, not, not, I don't want to say not professional, but it's not like, you know, it's not like it is now. Now it's a big, big streamlined organization. Who are the bidders? The bidders are guys, Vornado. You all know Vornado. Boston Properties, the legendary Mort Zuckerman. I think Brookfield may have been, I don't remember. Silverstein is not the high bidder. The highest bidder is Ari Vornado who at the time was a national REIT. Now they are not. Now they're a New York-focused REIT. They bid on it. Roth is, was and is one of the shrewdest people out there. And him and Fasciatelli, who is the CEO at the time, now he does something on his own, but these guys know what they're doing. So they basically bid, and they're bidding like $3.3 billion. Yeah. He now owns the Wheel Hotel in Las Vegas. Please continue. Yeah. Fasciatelli? Yes. Mike Fascielli is a genius. So he was at Goldman Sachs. Roth hired him to be CEO of Vornado and paid him a mint. And by the way, we have encountered these two people before. 
when we did the Liars Ball because they were the other guy. And back, remember back then they were national reach. They owned stuff all over the place. Now they've they've spun all that stuff off. The Urban Edge they've spun off. JBG Smith they've spun off. Now they just do Manhattan. But back then they were national. So it's a 99-year ground lease. It's going to be for towers one through six, which is about 16 acres, right? It's a super block. Now it's not. So it's a super block. It's for the trade center complex that includes the Twin Towers. Fashitelli and, and, and Roth, they've won. Now they're negotiating with the Port Authority. They put down the deposit, I think. And they basically say, yeah, we need you to change this deal. And the Port Authority is like, why? Uh, well, if we do a 99-year lease, because of accounting rules, it does something to our balance sheet. We don't want to do that. We want to do a 39-year lease with a bunch of renewals. The poor authority have fights them. Eventually, they just say, ah, forget it. We're done. They walk away. <laughs> so they turn around and walk away. Silverstein has been in the background. He's betting that these guys aren't going to be able to come to an agreement because he knows, you know, look, the Port Authority is the Port Authority. You know, Fasciatelli and, and Roth are very good private developers. They're not going to take on a $3 billion liability onto their books if they can't, if they can't avoid it. So they don't. So, yes. And it's also because of the um, larger companies have a more complicated investment process with the investment committee. Isn't it? We also talked about this in Sam Zell's book. You're absolutely right. They're a huge company and they don't answer to investors. They answer to Wall Street, which are investors. But, you know, a, st- a stock analyst goes negative. You, you take on a new project that the stock price is going to go down. They're basically saying, look, we can't do this. You have to structure the deal this way. The Port Authority basically says, we're not interested in that. We told you what we want to do. Don't come, don't bid and win and then say, yeah, we want to do it some other way. Okay, fine. Silverstein is there. He's hit by a car. He's in the hospital. He says, I can win this bid. He goes, he asks the doctors, turn my morphine down so I can negotiate this. He's in NYU hospital under a different name. He doesn't want anybody to know. He doesn't want the New York Times and the Post to find out that he's in the hospital. Because then, what does everybody do when they're on the subway? They buy the Post and they read the Post. Now, if I'm the head of the Port Authority and I'm on the subway going down to my office and I read Larry Silverstein is in the hospital with a broken femur, I'd be like, yeah, I don't feel like dealing with this guy if he's in the hospital. And then I throw my Post out and you move on. Uh, Google Larry Silverstein hospital. It's on his website. Larry Silverstein on getting hit by a car. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's on the observers.com. Yes. Yeah. This is, this is, no, he was hit by a car. Okay. And he was, he was in the hospital. He wins. Okay, fine. Now he's got to get the investors to do it. This is going to be a whole other issue. He brings in a bunch of, he, because remember what the real estate developers do they don't invest their own money. They invest other people. They invest some of their own money and they invest other people's money. So he brings, he puts together a group with the Carries and um, a gold little's brother, uh, Lloyd Goldman. Yes. Yes. Somebody's cousin or somebody's brother from the it's, Goldman family. It's the nephew of the Goldman. It's Lloyd Goldman. He's yes, around yes. today. He's, these guys have, have, Silverstein is a real estate developer. He's really, really rich, but he's not as rich as people think in the traditional sense. Like the traditional rich, we think is Scrooge McDuck, right? He's got a vault with money in it or a bank account with money in it. Silverstein owns buildings. He doesn't have $100 million in cash lying around. He's got buildings. Goldman has, for whatever reason, Goldman's able to put together a group that has it. And they're negotiating on the financing and they're negotiating on how they're going to split their development fees. Literally up until the minute the deal closed. This is to the wire. Silverstein wins, and he has now achieved his dream, which was to own the Twin Towers. This is in, this is over, I remember this. It was in the summer of 2001. And I remember at the time I was working for my aunt. She had a company, she worked with a company that did media and advertising. And I had a, a summer job there. It was a great job. The company was later bought out by Nielsen. Everybody involved did very well. 
Wait, so this happened a uh, month before the actual event, yeah, right? This was months before. What? I remember I went, so their office was at Broadway and Walker, which is probably about a mile, mile and a half from me, from the trade center. And I walked down to the trade center and I remember looking up and I said, and, and, and these buildings were so high, you could barely see the top of them. And by the way, they weren't even the tallest in the, in the world anymore. But they were high, and remember, they were basically all being used. You know, a lot of modern buildings, you know, there's like a spot. Like they had a spire, yeah. But you know, these buildings, you could be at the top floor, and you could go to lunch there. Windows on the world. It was on like the hundred and seventh floor. One of my uh, a family friend got married. I did not go. I was probably not just before I was born. But people would go to Windows on the World, which was the site of one of the most some of the most tragic stories you've ever heard about Windows on. The Windows on the Wall was literally a restaurant on, at the top of this thing. You can Google it and you could see the views from it. They, they were probably spectacular. They had an observation that, yeah, it was a big, tall building. It was all used. It was filled with companies like Morgan Stanley, Cantor Fitzgerald, Ford Authority, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a cheaper alternative. It was not class, class A. It was marginal class A. It was like lower class A. It wasn't class B, but it wasn't like, you know, modern companies want particular kinds of buildings. Like it was not the version of one Vanderbilt. It was not the model. Uh, back then, I guess the, the newest building was sometimes square. This was, was a notch below that, but it was, it, this is good office space. On September 11th, two planes at the towers. Towers burn, the steel basically weakens and the towers collapse. And when the towers collapse, it blows debris and pieces of human wreck, human bodies all over the area. Uh, the World Trade, World Financial Center is damaged. There was a building called the Deutsche Bank building that had a gash. Google Deutsche Bank building, you will see the gash. It was like a 30-story gash. The Deutsche Bank building, and they talk about this in the book, has to be torn down. It takes them about seven years. There's a fire. People die. It's a friggin' disaster to tear that building down. Seven World Trade Center has these gigantic diesel tanks. And they don't talk about this in the book, but I remember this. The diesel tanks got caught on fire because they were there to power OEM, the bunker. So this, And then it collapses. So Seven World Trade Center, which is the city's emergency management hub, collapses. Giuliani was at the time the mayor. He's literally holding, holed up in the Soho Grand Hotel, I think, which was probably a mile and a half from there. I mean, this is absolute chaos and pandemonium. And something I remember vividly, but this is not about you know, my recollections of 9-11. You've got debris and stuff all over, and, and excavating this is going to be a, a complete and total chore or, or, or task. It, it's horrible. You've got to dig all this stuff out. You've got to look for body parts. They're still trying to identify body parts. It's been 20 years. Bodies are blown all over downtown Manhattan. They found a, 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 one of the wheels blocks away. I don't think anybody can remember. And, and, and I was once down there at what became known as Ground Zero. It was Huge. It was a 16-acre excavation and then construction site. And, and, and let me say this. It is still not finished. There's still one site left. They have since the Twin Towers after their collapse have been replaced by about four office buildings plus seven. Seven's on a separate site. Seven is the first to be rebuilt for two reasons. Number one, it's privately owned. Number two, there was nobody killed there. So there's no like, you know, there, there's... Silverstein owned the, the ground lease because it had been leased separately. It wasn't a part of the trade center. It was its own ad. So seven is rebuilt relatively quickly. The rest of it becomes a long, drawn-out political process that we should probably talk about next time because it went on for years. But I think the important thing to do is just first take a second to commemorate the victims. But... This was a tragedy like Pearl Harbor, just even worse. 3,000 something people were killed. And it happened literally on the island where we lived. And at the time, nobody thought downtown was going to survive. 
it was really shocking. I think Art has to go and I have to go. Um, so any comments, questions? Um, so in this episode, we talk about the Twin Towers, the previous history of the site that we see today. And then maybe the next episode, we can talk about the redevelopment process and the political, yeah, yeah, the yeah, lawsuits, yeah, yeah. because that will take probably two hours to talk it's, about that. This, listen, this book is a, it's a 700 page book. I read it in the last 48 hours. It's really an interesting book. And what's so interesting about it is it talks about political, financial, it, Professor Sagalon, she's from, she works at, I think she's at Columbia Business School. She is. Yeah, so I I got a signed copy from Oh, I'm jealous. (laughs) But I had that book when I was living in New York. But when I was packing up my stuff to move back to Vegas, that book is really heavy that I just couldn't bring it with me back home. So I gave it to my classmate, my friend at New York. It's a great book. It's available on Amazon. I recommend buying it and reading it just because it is so detailed. And, you know, if, if you're you know, I know that everybody here is involved in real estate, but if you're talking, I read this before I went to real estate um, school, but you know, it talks about everything. It talks about the politics of it, the, the, the dysfunction of New York and New Jersey afterwards. If you're looking for a book that is really the total package, this is it. It's not like other books that we've read, which were written, read, written for a broad audience. This is a very well-written book, but this is a book that only, pe- not only, but People who understand real estate, I think, appreciate could appreciate this book. It's a great book. I recommend it. It's outstanding. And you know, it's not a biography of the Twin Towers. You can get another book that's that does that. It's the story of what happened after that. But you can't understand what happened after that without understanding several things. So quick question though. So the, now the new redevelopment is, I know there's like a memorial water fountain and then there's the Freedom Tower is that the one world trace and that's replacing it, right? You're jumping ahead about 15, about 20 years, but yes. So okay. what ends up happening, remember, we've got a 16 acre super block, right? They put two streets in there and they put four buildings. Pataki eventually, he was the governor at the time, he decides, I'm not gonna touch the the sites of the trades, because that's where the people were, that's where they died. That is the water fountain, I think, now. Beneath that, or beneath the plaza, is the Ground Zero Museum. The Freedom Tower is One World Trade Center. It is essentially a tank. It's like 10 stories of concrete, then a building. It is Class A. It's uh, Condé Nast is in there, if I'm not mistaken. And then there were three or four other commercial towers on that, on the Super Bowl. So, yes, you're right. Okay, okay. So, that's the new sign now. Okay. Yeah, yes, well, yes. save that so, for next Yeah. Yeah, but before, on the site of the pools were two buildings. They were an acre. Each building was an acre, and they were 110 stories tall. They were gigantic, long cylinders. They were huge. They, they were absolutely gigantic. And you know, these days, you don't really build buildings like that because you don't make money on them. I know Art and Jeremy have to go. And for the next episode, I'm going to invite DK, my friend and previous guest of this podcast, because he's an architect. And I would love him to talk about the design of the Twin Towers and the One World Trade Center and how 9-11 changed the layout layout of the office floor. I think that is very important to to talk about design and architecture of those buildings. This the thing about this, and I'm glad you we agreed to do two episodes or three episodes. Is it's so detailed. You'll probably be editing this for a month. It's it's there's just a lot of information. Boone, before I go, what did you think of this? Oh, love this. Boone, I think it was really good. (laughs) Sorry, I think it was uh, really good. Like I never really knew any of this stuff. Personally, from I New York? Don't really. No, pardon? Are you from New York? No, I'm from Thailand. No, but where do you live right now? Like, uh, you... I live in New York right now. Yeah. Where? Um, uh, Midtown, around well, like Times Square ish. It's a busy area. It's a really busy area, but then it's like pretty close to Midtown Center, so I just picked here. The book and like the content, I think it's like really fascinating to me. Never really knew much about like uh 
like what happened before or what happened after. I just knew that about, I just knew about 9-11 and I knew about like the fountain and stuff, but like never really the history of it mm-hmm. and the aftermath. So I think it's really cool. It's like learning new things every day. Welcome to it's, the book club. Boone. It's, it's a great book. Happy to be here. It's, it's a great book. I personally think that they should use it as a teaching tool, but we'll see. I have to go to Manhattan. Okay. Uh, bye, Jeremy. Will, I'll call you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay. Very nice Ooh. to meet you. Bye, Jeremy. You can go. Bye. So for this book club, we're pretty casual. You 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 know, I was eating watermelon and banana <laughs> chips. So yeah. don't be shy. And if you like to add any comments or ask questions, feel free to jump in. We're all very friendly here. We don't bite people. And, <laughs> Thank and, you. Art is based in Toronto, so he knows a lot of stories and news about Canada development. So he's our Canada expert here, and I'm based in Las Vegas. So anything about mobs and casinos, I usually jump in. And then Jeremy is the main character um, of this book club. You can just tell by how many books are in his bedroom. He he will have his own library one day. I promise. <laughs> I can already tell. It's, um, uh, I want to point something out. We recently just constructed this. It's like a new class A, best in class class A. Let, let me actually. Uh, wait a minute. I'm first time using screen sorry. sharing. No. Uh, give me two. Oh, here we go. And Boone. Do you know a lot about Thailand development or Thailand commercial real estate market? Um, so like about Thailand, it really depends like what you're talking about. Because in Thailand, like the real estate market in Bangkok is very different from outside of Thailand. Since we're still a developing country and we only have really just one main city of Bangkok, the rest are more like tourist towns. So if you talk about real estate in Thailand, you have to like separate, hey, like is it in Bangkok or is it like rural Thailand? Because the economics of that is very different. And like the way that people uh, like rent and buy is very different compared to the U.S. We should do an episode about Thailand commercial real estate. And by the way, since you got an undergrad in finance, you must have learned or heard of the Asia financial crisis. Oh, uh, yeah. So about the Thai, like I wrote some a few term, like one term paper about the uh, financial oh. crisis. But yeah. So we will do an episode about that for sure. Jeremy is very the one excited. in 1997, right? Yes. Oh uh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. So a little preview of a future episode. And this book club has no set topics. Even if we have an agenda, we never follow the agenda. So feel free to. Oh, uh, I just uh, check out uh, Ninja and Boom. Mm-hmm. Check out the uh, the link I put in the chat. That's we okay. recently just constructed that. It's a class A office calls. One of the towers is actually open to the public, just started leasing, like open to the tenants this week. And the tower two across the street is actually finished. So if you look at the database, uh, it's known as the CIBC Square. The area is actually in the financial district. And that area used to be like a rail yard commuter train area. Yeah, close to the water. These two buildings are like the reflection of each other. Is that right? Like they're the same design, but it's tower A and tower two. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's funny. So this building actually got leased up to full, almost close to full occupancy during the pandemic. When people were like, oh, okay, office is not going to come back. But we end up having a lot of people still wanting to sign for the office space to attract talents, right? So, yeah. hmm when are we going to do a collab panel about Toronto real estate art? Not sure, but my boss is actually on a Toronto panel tomorrow for Urban Land Institute. He's talking about how many active cranes. So it's funny. Um, I was actually informed that about 250 active cranes in the city of Toronto alone. So in the downtown area, 250. And if you include the surrounding suburbs around Toronto, it's about 310 active cranes. Yeah. And we have one of the highest crane per capita in the city right now, within North America. So there is definitely a boom, right? So then let's do a panel about that. Yeah. Can uh, we get some cross-border investors too? Like 
the Canadian pension fund people? I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying my best, man. It's it's really hard to get. Uh, I'll try to get some good panelists here, but um, okay. I would try to get some New York developers too. Hey, would you go back to develop in Thailand, Boon, or no? Um, I think that's the plan, but like, that's a lot more complicated than it sounds. Because as I said, that like the laws in Thailand are like very weird. And, like the players you have to work to, it's kind of like very different compared to the U.S. So I have to like really think about it because in Thailand you have to deal a lot with the government. So as you may know, we have like a monarchy, and they basically like I'm talking about Thai Bangkok real estate is kind of like very different than compared to others. But in Bangkok real estate, the monarchy owns like basically all the prime real estate like land, and so like you need really good connections in order to do that. And so I'm still debating what what I would want to do in the future. It's same thing for China as well. I think yeah, it's the same thing for yeah. a lot of Asian um, countries. Uh, yeah. Asian countries, yeah. Yeah. The, the problem yeah. with real estate is it is a, such a local business that you really you're specialized in whatever city you work in because we actually Canada just had a federal election, well, the national election uh, Monday, and and basically you have to know a lot of politics to understand like because a lot of time when you are building or developing, you're actually negotiating with your local councils and your city planner for ages, years and years, and they won't actually work with you if you don't know them. Like, it's not like a job application. Like, you have to know them very well before they can expedite your application first, right? I mean, and so many zoning laws are just... I'll tell you, like, um, if you look at zoning laws, like in New York, I'm sure in New York, there's such a different, like, development application process. Even, like, if I move into a different municipality, there's a different planning process compared to downtown Toronto, right? If you just joined the Urban Land, NAOP, so NAOP is the more office, and office industrial, the real estate development. Urban Land is more urban planning, architecture focus. You have ICSC, which is International Council Shopping Center. So if you're They changed retail, their name. They changed their name. Yeah, I forgot what's it called now. Do you know? Um, let me Google it. But anybody that is in retail real estate, like shopping centers, malls, or e-commerce, ICSC is a pretty good one. Boone, you should write this down. We're giving you some good resources here. By the way, there's the, 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 the multinational multinational housing council. That one, there's build and there's um, oh. um the ICSC changed their name to innovating commerce serving communities. Okay, cool. Okay. It's still at the ICSC. <laughs> yeah, it's still IC. So write these. Actually, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll write them in the chat. And then um, there's... Okay. Boone. That would be awesome. Yeah. Join these awesome. associations because they have student discounts. So just join. And ULI, Urban Land Institute. You know what? If you go on my LinkedIn profile, you, you scroll down to like the, the association or the volunteer session of my LinkedIn profile. You can see how many associations that I'm involved in. NAOP, Urban Land Institute, CCIM is more for like investment sales brokers. Crew Commercial Real Estate Women, men are welcome to join too. And oh, Chamber of Commerce of your local city. Since you're a student of NYU Shack, make sure you join CREFC, C-R-E-F-C. They have free membership for a student. CREFC is more on the debt and like the CMBS lending, direct lending balance sheet or mortgage broker side. Depends on your interest. You know, if you're in development, I highly recommend the Urban Land Institute, which I'm a member of the Vegas chapter. So I'm trying to promote our chapter to get more members to join. I see. It depends on what you are interested in. So like for me, you know, and also make sure the local chapter you join in actually put stuff out for you to come out because you don't want to pay a membership and just not have anything planned, right? So Honestly, if you join these associations and pay the student price, I'm sure you'll get so much value out of it. And, you know, don't be afraid, you know, that there's tons of um, LinkedIn. You can always go on LinkedIn and, yeah. And Boone. Sorry, I'm eating my watermelon. If you're a member of the ICSC, please come to Las Vegas in December. 
I believe they have their in-person convention in early December. I don't remember the date, but go to their website. It's the largest retail real estate convention. And it's a lot of fun because it's in Las Vegas. And you have a tour guide. When is it in Vegas? And um, Let me send you the link. Also, kind of off topic, um, how, when do we, like, when does the book of meet usually meet? It meets, depends on our availability. And <laughs> most importantly, it depends on Jeremy's availability. Usually <laughs> we do it at night, East Coast time, and we just chit chat. And sometimes we go Got off it, topic uh... like this. And if you haven't checked out my podcast, I'm going to send you the link of my podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to give us a review if you like us <laughs> and try to help spread the word and tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome. And it's kind of late in New York. So if you have to hop off, <laughs> go ahead. We're pretty chill here. Sounds good. Thank you so Maybe, much. Uh, I see, I see. Uh, in Vegas. Uh, Art, Boone is leaving. He wants to leave <laughs> and sleep. Art, let's <laughs> just finish today's episode. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so I much. Know. Let's, really let's nice give Art two more minutes. Art, what were you going to say? Yeah. Oh, uh, ICSC in Vegas. Okay. It's from December 57. Okay. I'll consider it, but I can't make any promises right now. When you say you consider, that means you are coming because a Vegas local will be your tour guide. And since now you already know me, that means you have to come. Yeah, I mean, okay, well, I'll try my best. Okay, I'll let you know. Hey, you also have my communication, so. Maybe you and Jeremy can meet up together and then both of you can come. And Boone too. And we do a live recording in Las Vegas for this book club. Talk about the development history of the Las Vegas Strip recording it live on the las vegas strip how cool is that all right well uh, i think i might sign off it's already getting late and okay. uh, I, I got uh, other stuff i'll see you soon okay. bye-bye bye guys nice thank you nice bye. to meet you all.